0: With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello,
1: everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese joining me from Chicago. Both of us coming off of an interesting weekend, let's put it that way, of uh, SRO America coverage at Road America, some good, some confusing, and some just plain head-scratching, and we'll do our best to try and get you through that in just a little while as we recap the weekend that was. We've got news to get to on the show. Also, should also mention we're going to recap briefly what happened at Spa in the European Le Mans series, but uh, then we do have a lot of news to get to this week. An interview with Mike Hedlund, who in many ways was the star of the show, especially in race two of the weekend at... At Road America for Blancpain GT World Challenge America, where he and Dane Cameron, despite being a pro-am entry, got the overall win. uh, Thanks in large part to a really solid stint from Mike in his time in the car. We'll talk to him about that and more. And there's a whole lot of uh, other things to cover, including some listener comments and a look ahead at what's to come this upcoming weekend. But uh, let's start uh, in Road America, John, where we we certainly will have some time to discuss what was a confusing race, two for Blancpain GT World Challenge America. And, and we'll get to all the confusion in due time. But I actually do want to start with the Mike Headland and, and Dane Cameron real-time story, because it's a good one. Without a doubt, a uh, couple of Pro-Am wins for them over the weekend. Dane Cameron is all of a sudden in the championship fight for Pro-Am, despite effectively not scoring points in three races. They didn't race at Coda, and then he was uh, they raced as a pro lineup with Trent Hidman, teaming with Dane in one of the races at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, so didn't score towards the Pro-Am championship there. And despite all of that, uh, because of this great run of form, really dating back to Mike joining the team at Sonoma, they, they've been on a roll. Dane's right there in the mix, and they just picked up Real Time's 100th win in the team's history on home soil there at Road America. It was pretty cool to see.
2: Yeah, Ryan, it was really remarkable to see what Real Time was able to do over the course of the weekend. Um, race two, obviously, with, with Mike Um bringing the car home for the overall win i i don't think a lot of people had expected that could have been a possibility in blangpan gt world challenge this year um we saw mike leading before uh, most recently at watkins glen and and that was always um, quite interesting to see you know the what-if potentials there of a, of a pro-am driver lineup um, winning overall but it happened and and i think that's good that we don't take away from any of that, of the controversy that we'll get to later in the show, but um, definitely a historic race from that perspective. I think Mike and, and Dane Cameron were the deserved winners no matter what happened in, in the race. They were out front. Mike held his own. Um, sure, the pro cars were slowly, gradually catching them, but I don't think they were going to get to them at the end of the race, even if they had the crazy caution snafu had occurred so um amazing stuff there it showed the strength of the Acura showed the strength of the team like you said their 100th win Um, it was it really couldn't have gone any better for for those guys
1: yeah really cool and it also it's the second race two of the weekend in a row going back to Watkins Glen where Mike led a significant portion of the race overall ultimately he did concede the overall race lead there in race two at Watkins Glen but the way that the the championship is formatted with the pro drivers qualifying and starting for race two that can lead to some of these situations where uh, pro-am cars end up in high the high running order positions um, in race two, turning it over to ams and and actually it's led to some really fun racing I think in race two and and this was a great chance for for Mike to really show what he was made of He's been a a really good fit talking to Peter Cunningham with the team loves the car, thinks it really fits his style. Uh, And clearly that's been the case and has been one of the cool stories of the season coming in halfway through. And it's really helped launch Dane Cameron, who's had a really good IMSA season, too. So you look at what Dane has put together in North America here this season, and he's a candidate. If you're trying to put together a North American sports car driver of the year, you look at what he's done in a prototype, what he's done in a GT3 car. That's a cool story, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. His his year is on fire between the the Acura ARX zero five and the WeatherTech Championship, and this. Um, nsx gt3 evo program that sort of came together late you know they they obviously missed the the coda season opener because the contracts were still coming into place that weekend and what was supposed to be a, a, a season-long effort with um, brett curtis unfortunately brett hurt his back then it turned out it sort of ended up being too big for the car too tall for the car and um, mike was brought in on short notice at, at sonoma and um, sort of jumped in the car and, and was super fast right away so um, you know it, it's great to see this combination um, having so much success and it's great to see Dane having such a great year and you know if you had to sort of put the, your money on the driver of the year you know looking at sports car racing globally even I think you, you know Dane's probably your guy right now um, still a lot can happen in, in the final weekends of the IMSA and, uh, and uh, Blancpain GT World Challenge America seasons but um, for sure he's been one of the benchmarks.
1: Yep. All right. Well, let's get to the controversy, which certainly was the talking point leaving Road America. And we should preface all of this discussion that uh, we were recording this on the evening, a uh, Monday evening after the race, and things are still perhaps up in the air, maybe possibly some changes could be coming. We know that a protest was lodged and heard, but uh, what the ultimate outcome of that is going to be, we don't know at time of recording. So. Just keep that caveat in mind if you're listening a little bit later in the week or who knows, even by the time we release this tomorrow morning, uh, there's a chance that uh, that things have changed. But I I guess we'll have you describe what happened first and then we'll get to what the ultimate implications of it are and, and try and make sense of the whole situation.
2: Yeah, and I think it, it's pretty clear. I'll describe what I saw sitting in the media center when all this happened. And it's interesting because I've been asking other drivers their viewpoint of what they saw when they were driving. So it's kind of like a crime scene investigation sure. almost. <laughs> Yet I don't think it's anything of that magnitude. But um, yeah, so basically, to, to long story short, there was a, a full course caution called by race control and then it was rescinded so this was with 10 minutes to go in the race mike edland was in a a significant lead i think he had five or six seconds on martin barkey i believe who was in the second placed pro-am acura from the racer's edge motorsports team and he was hounded by a by both the bentleys and the R. ferry motorsport ferrari of daniel sarah was running in fifth at the time i believe this caution came out after a uh, a crash by david askew in the number 63 dxdt mercedes at the kink um safety car lights were on the the screen said safety car there were double yellows on the starter stand and for about 15 or 20 seconds that's the way it looked all of a sudden i saw a green flag wave at start finish line i looked at the the tracker the, the 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 um in the media center we have this little uh we have a bunch of different screens you can you can look at you know there's a race feed there's timing and scoring and there's also this um dots system basically it shows where the cars are at on the track in in a gps um based system and you know everything is organized by car number you know so car number 43 was leading and you saw it dri- driving along a little slower pace because they were st- uh, queuing up for what was going to be a safety car and there was an sc listed there as well and i was curious as the green flag. flag was waved there was an sc on the track according to this tracking system and um the sc drove through turn two down to turn turn three down the back stretch and then all of a sudden the sc uh, beacon disappeared at turn five and and that's a common runoff area where 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 drivers run um go off if they have problems or a safety car can dive in or, or, or track workers or whatever so i'm just laying out the facts um it, it, it appeared that sro told teams there was no safety car on the track but judging by the beacon system it appeared there was and this was during a, a green flag situation after they decided to call off the yellow um, basically what happened from there it was daniel sarah got a jump on the two bentleys and um the acura got into second place uh had a considerable margin from there and uh, started hunting down headland ultimately headland held on by half a second at the line for the victory so um the big controversy stemming is why did the race go green within i think 30 seconds of the safety car being called out and we still don't have an answer on that um there was, there were some theories going around that that could have been a full course yellow like a, a similar system we see in Europe with the virtual safety car but these cars are not equipped with a button in in the cockpit on the steering wheel to go down to 80 kilometers per hour um it's my understanding that in the pre-race driver meeting um teams were assured that every yellow will lead to a safety car and we often see that in blancpan gt in europe and asia as well so there's no um difference there you know i I remember the the spot 24 hours this year i think every single um, virtual safety car led to a full safety car period to bunch the field up um these rules are a little different in america but uh, multiple drivers told me from the drivers meeting that there was never to be a virtual safety car of any kind and um yeah so um capex has told me that they have won their protest against this decision because their Bentleys were caught off guard from this basically um, Mike Headland and Daniel Sarah both told us that they heard green 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 on the radio and they went when they heard green 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 Um, the Bentley drivers didn't go, go go at that time I don't know if that was because of a state of confusion or or they were expecting to go green full throttle at the start finish line there was a bit of confusion there um ultimately um bentley and capex claim that they have won their uh their protest against this this call sro is still yet to make a comment um the results are still provisional on the website Um, i've made repeated attempts to reach out to sro and there still hasn't been any um formal statement or any kind of communication here so um the points have been issued on, on the tsl timing website so i don't know if that means anything but um crucially why this sort of became so controversial is because the f- with the ferrari of daniel Serra passing the two bentleys that was enough for our ferry and tony vlander to clinch the pro championship in gt world challenge america a- 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 as they were running before this yellow period it wouldn't have been enough and the title race would have gone down to las vegas motor speedway so i think that's why we're sort of playing this up quite a bit um, it had Championship implications. Okay, although a bit of a long shot, still um, it, it leads to some confusion over are the our fairy guys crown champions? Are they clinched or not? We we don't know.
1: Well, I think it was interesting too. My post race interview for television with Tony V. Lander, and I asked him about provisionally being the champion as things stood uh, with the cars crossing the line, and he was quick to say, let's wait and see how this plays out. I, I was standing down between the Our Ferry pits and the K-Pax pits when this whole situation took place. And you could imagine it was an interesting place to be, the various reactions. Uh, there, it, was, it was certainly surprise, and, and I would probably say outrage on the part of k and a lot of surprise and a lot of confusion on the part of our ferry. And one of the first people that I saw actually afterwards was Tony vlander, and he wanted to know what I knew uh, had happened. At that, at that point, it was very little, unfortunately, but uh, you could tell he was as taken aback as anyone and didn't take any particular joy, nor would I say the R-Fairy team took any particular joy in the fact that, yeah, they they got a win, but the, the circumstances really weren't what they would have liked them to be. So, uh, like you said, the, the big outcome that's in question is whether or not the championship will go to Vegas. There's so many question marks surrounding this Vegas event. It really is one of those that, that no one has any real... Comfort going into. So the big talking point with a lot of drivers in championship hunts going into this weekend was we want to be in the best possible points position because we don't know what Vegas is going to throw our way. And that certainly was Tony's outlook. And if he can indeed wrap up the championship going into Vegas and all the unknowns of a brand new track, that would be a big weight off of his shoulders. So there's a lot that rides on this. And to be honest, I think objectively you can look at this and and a mistake was made in in some regard. To your point earlier, unlike in Europe, not only do these cars not have the button to simply take them down to 80 kph for a virtual safety car situation, but I know from previous driver's meetings that I've sat in, I was not in the ones this weekend, but at previous events, it was discussed that, frankly, race control does not, in, in the States, does not have the ability to monitor whether or not drivers are going the appropriate speed so that's not something that the series here can do so clearly this was uh, not the normal yellow uh, protocol that was followed i think everyone can agree on that that now the the tough part is what can you do to try and rectify the situation because frankly i don't see a lot of easy fixes
2: yeah and there, there is no easy way to sort of fix it because if you give the positions back to the Bentleys this was something that happened with 10 minutes to go in the race it's not like it was the final lap and Thomas Blom the, the the team strategist for for Capex, was on the the World Challenge team app you know basically saying this has to be fixed now this has to be fixed now right when all this happened you know expecting that maybe race control would make a call during the race to, to ask the 61 to give up its positions or something but that never happened and I also want to make it clear that what we're saying, I don't think anybody did anything wrong maliciously. Correct. Like from the from the team' standpoints at least, you know that I don't think our ferry was doing this on purpose. That they broke a rule. I don't think that K was doing anything illegally. I think this was just sort of the the effect of what happened on the track. The freak instance of this yellow being rescinded, being taken back. That's what led to all this confusion. And there was a lot of people upset post-race in Victory Lane. And I had some phone calls with some drivers on my way back to Chicago and they were all outraged. But we all came to the conclusion that nobody was mad at any certain person. They were just mad at the way the whole situation ended and that if you could pull the clock back you know 60 minutes before uh, 90 minutes before the start of the race or, or or even you know before this caution was called i think maybe things could have been handled in a little better of a fashion so um let's at least be clear that you know there's nobody laying blame on our ferry here for this i think capex for instance is upset at the way the situation unfolded and it wasn't at Directed at, at at our ferry guys.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. Uh, I I don't fault Daniel Sarah for going. If he heard green, 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 what are you supposed to do? You go, right? You got to react to that. And and it sounds like Mike Headland did the same, and that probably helped him uh, get that overall win that we were talking about earlier. And and uh, why that same message wasn't conveyed at the same time or wasn't heard at least by the K Pax drivers is a question that uh, I don't think we've got an answer to. But but you're right. It's this is. Uh, the the controversy is the situation not an individual's reaction to the situation and anyway it, it unfortunately tarnished what had been a pretty entertaining race quite frankly um and and it's a shame that that's the way that that it went down. And it also, I think, overshadows one of the other starring performances of the weekend, which was Daniel Serra in this Ferrari, because Tony V. looks like he's going to be the champion, or at least in a very good position to be the champion, exiting Las Vegas. But he needed some help from a different co-driver. He had Sarah with him at, at Watkins Glen. They won the races there. And Sarah was awesome at Road America, having never been there before. His qualifying effort in particular, 1.8 seconds clear of second place qualifying for race one, was mind-blowing. And it's a shame that what he did for that team and for his co-drivers' championship hopes gets overshadowed here.
2: Yeah, and and they had a really dominant race one, and that's something we didn't even discuss here, I don't think Yeah, you're right. Um, Yeah, so it was... um, you know honestly kind of a boring race Uh, the uh, race one race two were complete opposites of each other and um but i I, boring in 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 one way but commanding in the other with the R. ferry guys they 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 were clearly in a league of their own and i think one of the differences in race two which made it so unpredictable and made the race a lot closer was the threat of rain a lot of these cars were on different setups um you reported about it during the broadcast ryan that you know Uh, there was a lot of compromised setups in these cars because of the anticipation of rain um, returning to the track it was uh, a a dreadful day on Sunday Um, uh, that's to say the least I think you probably (laughs) were one of the ones to get soaked the most throughout the day while I was in the comfy media center but um, yeah it was uh, I think the team's played different types of, of setups on their cars. And that's what made it so interesting in race two. And, you know, if that yellow had not happened, I think we might've had a pack of five or six cars all going out for the win on the final lap. And it was, it was shaping up to be one of the most remarkable finishes, um, But perhaps in series history, had that yellow not been flown.
1: Yeah, still ended up being remarkable, but for uh, different reasons, unfortunately. So anyway, that's what we know. That's how it stands as of 7.20 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday night as we're recording this uh, right now. So... That took a lot of time. We're going to have to roll through some of the other results just briefly. Pirelli GT4 America sprint action. Actually, I do want to dwell on this for just a moment here because this was a huge one in the pro class. The championship battle in the pro class has been great all season long between Ian James Michael Cooper and Spencer Pompelli and it got turned on its head again with a terrible weekend really through no fault of his own for Ian James some mechanical problems that uh, limited him to scoring just a single point in race one had to start at the back because of an engine change in race two then weather kind of conspired to shake things up we only got half points issued for race two because the race was shortened due to some adverse weather conditions and we go into Vegas John with a really good battle for the pro championship with three drivers separated by just eight and a half points with two races remaining
2: yeah that's going to be incredible and um really looking forward to it i think we we talked about it earlier in the weekend that out of the two gt4 america series i think sprints really shown through to be an extremely entertaining battle and it might just be for the simplicity of it because you have pro and then you have am and they're 50 minute races single driver no pit stops it's the classic world challenge format and we have three really great drivers up front battling it out Um, we obviously you saw drew stavely lock up the am championship this weekend which was great for him second year in a row with the ian Lacey racing team this time with ford with the ford mustang gt4 but up front um yeah i'm, I'm really looking forward to what unfolds uh in in, in las vegas um but uh, great weekend for Michael Cooper a sweep of the weekend there in the rain and in the dry um, showed that uh, the strength of the McLaren um, has really turned a corner there um, great for Black Dog Speed Shop a team you know located um, not too far away in, in the suburbs of Chicago so um, all in all I think it was a, a really satisfying weekend for the sprint competitors
1: and in Sprint X we saw Murillo and Park Place split the overall wins in in those two races quite frankly the there's some many classes and so many winners if you want to see them all check out our story at sportscar365.com but notably the east championships wrapped up Carl Whitmer got the Sprint X East Pro-Am championship and one of the cool stories of the season uh, started the season with pre- precision driving tech uh, and ultimately couldn't uh, that team couldn't uh, make it Well, Marco Radicic, the co-driver, really couldn't make it to the the CTMP races, which left Carl scrambling for a ride. Ian Lacey racing threw him a lifeline, and he drove with Frank Gannett for a couple of weekends and came in with a slim lead in the championship to uh, the race at Road America. The team ultimately elected to put him with Drew Stavely to help his championship odds, and Drew made the pass in the final couple of laps, if I'm not mistaken, to put Carl in the position to win the championship
2: yeah it was really exciting stuff in the final race there um quite a story like you said ryan and and um these are the kind of stories that i, I wish we had more time to, <laughs> to to focus on but there's so many different classes there's so many different uh divisions um it's just crazy you know we saw the overall winners in race one matt Fossenat and Kristen Shimchak they won the east the gt4 east am championship but they won a bunch of races overall um in sprint x competition this year um but congratulations to them as well in murillo racing Um, that was definitely a hard-earned uh championship as well and we'll have the west GT4 West champions crowned alongside the nationwide Sprint X champions at Las Vegas when they have their season finale in a few weeks time.
1: And like I said, you can find the full results from all of the races at sportscar365.com plus plenty of reaction. There was a lot of it uh, from everything that transpired over the weekend at Road America. Briefly, let's discuss European Le Mans series action from Spa. Uh, in LMP2, United Autosports, uh, Phil Hansen and Philippe Albuquerque picked up the win. Interesting that they do it in an Orica. That's been the big story. The team that's been so uh, for so long associated with Lige now making the full-on switch to Orica equipment and uh, starts off uh, in a pretty good way here
2: yeah um they benefited with a, a drive-through penalty from the graph orica in the closing stages of the race but um definitely this is the first weekend with united autosports running both Oracas. they split it at uh at silverstone with having one Ligier, one orica now they're full all in with the uh, with the lmp2 spec oracas. Um, still obviously running the lige's in lmp3 but um good Uh, development for them obviously with some early success with their new package
1: and then in the lmp3 ranks we saw euro international pick up the win with some dramatics in the final lap michael jensen passing a pair of cars to move to the lead and claim the victory for them and lose racing with the win And the GTE title also uh, with their results there at SPA. A couple of other notes from the SPA paddock. We had the Mission H24 guys out there with that hydrogen-powered prototype taking part in actual practice sessions, and they were running... Times that were com- comparable to, to GT3 times, which when you consider the relative novelty of this uh, technology is, is, is quite impressive and a big step for them as they try and move closer to having hydrogen power cars being part of ACO championships down the road.
2: Yeah, this was the next step in the in the project. Um, Both Olivier Lombard and Norman Nato uh, turned laps in this car, like the green GT built LMP uh, HG car. I believe that's what it's called. Um, It's basically an LMP3 based uh, car with hydrogen that's powered by hydrogen with electric motors. Um, they demonstrated uh, refueling with hydrogen in the in the pits uh, in the garage, I believe, this weekend. Um, the first ever mobile hydrogen refueling station that was designed by Total. So. Um, some great developments here. You know, I think the ACO is really trying to push this along. It's their goal to have a hydrogen powered class at Lama in 2024. And so this is kind of the beta project or maybe even the alpha project right now um, as they're moving along with the technology and great to see it making steps in, in the right direction. Um, I think the next step is to have it in a Michelin Lama Cup race. I don't think we'll see it this year, but you never know. Um, I, I think the plan will probably be more towards next year. But um, great to see the you know the progress made with this program.
1: And lastly, the 2020 ELMS calendar was unveiled, and uh, all 2019 venues remain on the calendar. Only major change was Barcelona and Paul Ricard; those rounds will swap their spots on the calendar so barcelona moves to the season opener for the 2020 elms schedule all right that's a look at the racing from last weekend more can be found at sportscar365.com for some other series that we didn't have time to talk about here but we've got news to get to and we'll do that next on double stint
0: hey i'm patrick long and you're listening to Sportscar car 365's double stint podcast
1: Back now on Double Stint, it's time, John, to talk about some of the biggest news items of the week and maybe one of the biggest news items of the year as far as sports car racing is concerned was the announcement that Scott Atherton, in a somewhat surprising announcement, uh, came out and said he is going to be retiring from his current role with IMSA Following Petit Lama, he will remain in some capacity, uh, but a much diminished one. And uh, I have to say, this one came out of left field, as far as I was concerned when the news came out.
2: Yeah, for sure, Ryan. You know, there had been some talk about it uh, over the years. You know, I think that initially when the merger happened he had, i believe he had a three-year contract with imsa and that was sort of extended uh, a, a few years and then the 50th anniversary rolled around and he was still in charge and so i, I thought i didn't really think of it you know after a few years of all this happening and the success of the weather tech championship i sort of thought well maybe he's just going to stick with it you know and all of a sudden um he decided to announce his retirement and um it sort of came at a surprising time i, I think um, it was initially supposed to be announced at, at during the petite Mans weekend they decided to move it up after there was some talk in the paddock about it over the weekend at uh, weather tech raceway laguna seca um kudos to scott for wanting to do it on his own own terms announcing his own news and not having other media outlets um, break that kind of news um, ahead of time so it was it was good to see in that regard um, but yeah it, it's a huge end of an era um, 20 years leading basically North American sports car racing from the IMSA side of things, the ALMS with, um, uh, joining Dr. Don Paynos in the end of 1999 in the ALMS all through the, the, the merger era now into the unified, um, sports car championship with is which is now known as the WeatherTech tech sports car championship with, um, you know, under the controls of IMSA and, um, parent company, NASCAR. So, uh, yeah it's um he has big shoes to fill um we still have not heard who his successor will be but it will not be Ed bennett who will remain the ceo of imsa it's a little bit unclear who it could be there's been some rumors going around but i don't want to start spreading them here publicly on on the show but um, i think we can expect a, a name to be announced shortly after petit Lama uh, next month
1: you look at Scott's tenure and it you can kind of look at it as a, as a pivotal time for sports car racing in, in North America. You go back to the, the founding of the ALMS and sports car racing was on pretty rocky footing at the time. And even through the, the, the Grand Am ALMS competition days going up to the merger, you really weren't quite sure what the future of the of the sport was and what the health of the sport was in, in some respects and and now i think we're kind of looking at this current era as a renaissance of sorts and scott's been there through it all kind of shepherding it along in in some respects uh, would it be too much to say that that he's one of the the great architects of the sport in the last couple of decades
2: i'd have to agree a hundred percent with you ryan i i just You know, when the news dropped, it was sort of like, whoa, okay." try to put things in perspective. And it it took a while to sort of think about all the things he's been through and the the developments he 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 was a part of the the big moves he, he made to help sports car racing in the U.S. and, and even globally um, his relationship with the ACO and that's another important part um, he's going to be remaining on as the board in, in the board of directors in IMSA particularly to maintain that link to the ACO which is very important um, he has the strongest relations with um, the French government governing body um, ironically he, as when he was president with IMSA, within IMSA or ALMS uh, vice versa I think they went through three different presidents, ACO presidents through that time period. So that sort of puts things in perspective of how long Scott has been in this business. And um, overall, from a, a career standpoint, 34 years in motorsports, dating back to his first uh, uh, job as a, in, in marketing, I, I think with the um, Domino's racing program in, in the day, um, we have a great story with him. I think um, we did a few years back on Sports Car 365 where he sort of uh, explained how he got his start in the, in, in motorsports, And, um, it was really just, uh, just knocking on a bunch of doors, trying to, you know, get involved in, uh, in racing one way or another. And at the time in in the in the mid '80s, he saw two of the big sponsors that were activating in 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 motorsports were Marlboro and uh, and uh, Dominoes, and he took the Domino's route. Um, ultimately, um, lucked out when when the motorsports uh, director I think um, caught up and got caught, got caught up in some kind of scandal of sorts, and he sort of inherited the position. I think he was twenty something years old, and um, sort of led the the marketing program and, and the whole motorsports program for sponsorship program for Domino's through the years he worked his way up through the food chain no pun intended hmm. um in within the company to be a, one of the executive vice presidents i believe and and then um I went to head stints and in uh, different tracks through the years um, at Laguna Seca, Nazareth Speedway, California Speedway before being picked up with uh, by Dr. the late Dr. Panos. So uh, incredible career by by Scott. Um, We really owe a lot to him as as enthusiasts, as media, as followers of sports car racing, because, you know, I, I don't think we'd be in this position here talking right now if it wasn't for. Um, a lot of scott's contributions to the sport
1: and maybe none bigger than that alms grand dam merger and you had a story with him talking about that as the the the, the one event that he looks back on as the most rewarding in this remarkable career you've just uh, chronicled
2: it was a monumental period for sports car racing as a whole with the, the the announcement of the merger and i still remember helping break that news during the baltimore weekend and having to go into the imsa trailer um to ask for a comment from scott and that was a pretty surreal moment i think um for for probably both of us because you know that was sort of set into motion what was to come and um it was amazing how he sort of took the reins and and helped create what was now what what is now the the IMSA Sports Car IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, and there was a lot of doubters through those fir- first couple of years. Everybody thought it was going to be Grand Am 2.0. People were worried about the future, and I think Scott helped helped preserve a lot of the ALMS's high points and a lot of the positive influencing. Factors that made ALMS so great for the fans, and and as Don paynos would always say, and I, I think that he helped, you know, bring it to what bring this series to what it is today, just because of where he came from from the from the ALMS uh, era.
1: Yeah, really well said. So a lot more reaction to that can be found at the website as well. Let's get to another topic, this one from the other side of the pond, where we've had some LMP2 team owners weigh in on Hypercar. And this is something we've talked about a little bit on the show previously. Hypercar had so many questions hanging over it for so long that we really never had a chance, or, or maybe even people from the sanctioning bodies didn't have a chance to think too hard about what the implications of the brand new format would have on the existing LMP2 platform, which we know is going to have to play alongside hypercar for at least one season, and clearly there are going to be some complications that come to that. Most notably, the the speed disparity between what we currently have in the top class in LMP1 with the hybrids and the non-hybrids, for that matter, and uh, and what we expect as as, as top speeds and and uh, performance levels for the hypercar platform when it comes and where that stands relative to LMP2. So I I think this is going to be a major story to watch once we get some of these hypercar programs online.
2: Yeah, there's not much more to report other than that right now. Um, It's clear the ACO is going to have to slow them down, but how will they slow them down? And then how will that impact the GTE categories? Um, What's the next set of regulations for LMP2? Are we just going to see a small evolution? Is there going to be bigger changes? That's all still up in the air because the ACO and FIA's focus was on finalizing the hypercar regs first and I think we're still in that process um the the rule book is out the regs are out but there's still little points have to be defined there um before we get to september 2020 when that platform debuts so um lmp2 yeah there's a little bit of concern right now but As the category is so healthy right now, especially in ELMS, I think any drastic changes would come at a big detriment. Um, So ACO has to be very careful on what changes they make to that class, if, if at all.
1: Yeah, watch this space for sure. Uh, coming back to IMSA stateside for just a moment, we got the news last in the last week that Parker Chase will be joining the Ambassador Sullivan Lexus squad for Petit Le Mans. He had been racing with Starworks for most of the season previously in an Audi, so this is kind of a twofold bit of news here. One, that he's joining Ambassador Sullivan, and two, this puts Starworks on the back foot.
2: Yeah, this was something that's probably been in the works for more than a year, actually. There was initial discussions between um, Lexus, Amvastor Sullivan, and Parker during last season, during the off-season last year, to have Parker and Alexis. Ultimately, that didn't materialize. He went to Starworks with Ryan DL. Um, They unfortunately didn't have a season that they would have expected. Um, Some issues with the car, other problems, maybe concerns with the BOP. I, I don't know really where you where you put it but um bottom line is starworks future is a bit uncertain they have withdrawn from petite Le Mans. there were plans for them to return but since parker's gone off to avs um they they have decided not to take part in the race so it's unfortunate um hopefully uh, peter's peter barron's team can put together a program next year and if it does happen i think it won't be with an audi i think it will be probably with a different car
1: And then two teams on the SRO America side of things that uh, had some questions about their future. One we can answer, one still hangs in the balance. I know you talked to Ian James about the future of the Paynos program. And uh, you can talk on that subject in just a moment, but we did get some confirmation over the weekend that Robinson Racing, longtime sports car and Trans Am operation, will be coming. It'll be closing its uh, its doors following this weekend, actually at Road America, which was kind of an emotional uh, event for. Gar Robinson, son of George Robinson, who founded the the team. He's off to race in IMSA as part of the Riley lineup next year. But certainly the end of an era, a team that's been around for the better part of three decades
2: yeah um really sad news there, and I think some of us sort of saw it coming just because of the evolution of gar 's career and that 's the way gar explained to me you know he said that he owes so much to his father 's team he, 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 they all they all were like family to him, and it was such a hard decision to make, but he knew that in order to make that next step, he had to go with a more experienced team in g t Daytona and that 's riley motorsports so um, it's really sad to see the team sort of close its doors. Every, um, Gar said everything has gone up for sale, including their Camaros. Um, it's definitely an end of an era. Um, you know, the Robinson Racing name has been around sports car racing for, I think, close to 30 years. And um, in the early days of ALMS, I remember they had a Lola prototype, um, Riley and Scott in the, in the late 90s, uh, racing at the in, in Grand Dam. And so they've been everywhere, you know, in North American sports car racing transam like you said ryan hsr as well um yeah really sad but um times things change people move on and um yeah it's, it's, it's i guess it is what it is uh the more the most surprising thing for me is that they're not doing las vegas um i i thought maybe they'd you know complete the the gt4 sprint season but um gar explained to me that it just came down to finances that you know making that trip and um knowing that they're not in a championship position in in the in the sprint series you know um really you know didn't make much sense for them so that's why they decided to have road america be their final race
1: and then on the Panos front, what did Ian tell you as they look to keep those uh, awesome Avizanos on the grid looking ahead to next year?
2: Yeah, there is some uncertainty there from the factory perspective. Um, the team Panos Racing is only committed through this season. It was a, a one-year commitment by Nancy Panos, the um, the wife of uh, the late Dr. Don Panos, where she decided to keep Don's team going for at least one more year Um, there hasn't been a decision yet Uh, next year it's it's my understanding that it's kind of up to Ian James who's become the co- basically the team principle of the organization to sort of find the budgets find the customers to and the money to, to keep it going for next year um, Ian said there's been some good leads um, there are a lot of people interested in the car you know we see Preston Calvert and Matt Keegan uh, winning races in their category um, leading the the Sprint X National AM Championship heading into Las Vegas so um, you know the car was just recently homologated finally uh, after this uh, length of time so it's, it's GT4 legal it could race around the world in any SRO championship so um, hopefully we'll see some Panos on the grid um, Ian said they have the capacity to build more cars if they need to as well so um, fingers crossed um, we can see either the, the team continue with some customers or maybe customers purchasing the cars and running it in their own hands um, still a little bit unclear but um, hopefully the, the cars will be back in one way or another
1: well, lastly, I will mention uh, something we that, that really doesn't work so great in a podcast format, so make sure you go check out Sports Car 365 if you haven't done so already. Porsche will be running some awesome Coca-Cola tribute liveries at Petit Le Mans. Throwback to days gone by, really cool-looking cars. It looks good in, in the modern rendition as well. So if you haven't seen the pictures yet, we've got them for you at uh, at the website. Go check that out, and I bet those cars are going to be pretty popular when we get to Petit in October. All right, that's it for the news this week. We've got an interview with Mike Headland next on Double Stint.
0: Hi, I'm Dan Cameron and you're listening to SportsCar 365's Double Stint Podcast.
1: Mike Headland joins us now on the Double Stint Podcast. Drives of course for real time racing and Blancpun GT world challenge america and has been on quite a roll with the acura team alongside dane cameron in the driving lineup a bunch of wins here as of late mike including an overall win in race two of the weekend uh, this past weekend at road america which also was the 100th win for real-time racing so pretty remarkable pretty memorable for a lot of different reasons you've had a couple of days now to reflect on the accomplishment what most stands out to you
0: Um, I think just the overall success we've had since, uh, joining at Sonoma, um, we've just been really consistent, really strong, um, no, no problems, knock on wood, um, and getting that hundredth win for real time in front of all the, the team's friends and family. It was, it was just like crazy amazing. I don't think any of us expected that. Um, we're always, of course, trying, you know, to beat the pros or go, go as high as we can in the overall order, but, um. It was just kind of like a storybook ending for for a really good weekend. Um, I'm just I'm super proud of the team and the crew. Uh, also, Dane he did an amazing job both races and in qualifying and of course help, helping us get the car set up um, so that it's fast for me to drive. So overall, it was just a, it's been a really good run. Hopefully, we can keep it up in uh, Vegas.
1: That's two. Race weekends in a row now, where you found yourself leading overall and fighting with some of the best GT drivers in the world. How much pride do you take in the pace that you've been able to show, and some of the compliments that you've been getting from pro drivers that I assume you you look up to at least to some degree?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm not a big you know trophy collector. I don't I don't really care about that stuff. Um, it's more about kind of doing well against people who who are extremely talented and very good at what they do for a living, um, being anywhere near them and trying to compete on, on any level is, is, it it just makes me like kind of giggle on the inside. I'm not like super (laughs) emotional person, but I'm really proud of it. Um, I don't know what'll happen in the future, but if I never race again, I would be, I would be totally okay. Um, because we've done such a good job. Um, and I'm really proud of it and, and I work really hard at it, obviously, and the team works really hard to, to put us in a position so that so that we can do that. And luckily enough, we, we were able to do that. And coming in on one of the things that stands out is actually on the in-lap, um, the Bentleys came by me. And I, of course, drove with them a year or two ago on the k Pack side. So I know all those guys and hang out with them a lot. Um, but having them come by and and Pat and the, or uh, I think it was Hargrove and, and the Porsche came by and everyone gave me a thumbs up when they passed me on the in-lap. And I was just kind of like, that was probably the only time I was emotional. By the time I stopped in pit lane, I was all cool, calm, and collected. But that, uh, that in-lap was pretty crazy. It was, it was probably one of the best times I've ever had in a race car.
1: Well, you mentioned the fact that you only joined this team halfway through the season at Sonoma. And really, I, I don't know if you had any racing plans up until that opportunity popped up. How was it that you were able to stay sharp, stay ready, and when this opportunity presented itself uh, to
0: capitalize on it like you have? Yeah, I mean, since I started racing, I've never had that long of a break outside of a race car. Uh, So I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen. But obviously, at the end of 2018, I kind of kept in the loop and was talking with people and all that. But I just couldn't get a program together uh, with a budget that was, you know, within my range. Um, So I just kind of sat at home, continuing to talk to people about random things and maybe doing some one-off races uh, at the end of the year. Um, But doing some sim work and all that kind of stuff and studying data and watching videos and actually watching the races as they unfolded throughout the year. Um, I pretty much was able to, to kind of stay, to kind of keep the rust away, I would say. And then um, luckily we were able to start at Sonoma at my home track. So there wasn't really any kind of learning curve for that. It was more just, you know, getting familiar with the team and getting back into the, the kind of day to day of, of a race car weekend, which is uh, wake up early, go drive really fast and then go to bed early. Well, you've made it look
1: easy to just jump in and get the results. I know it isn't, but can you take people kind of behind the scenes in terms of, of what you have to do, the work that goes into being prepared to be able to give your best sure. on, on short notice?
0: Yeah, I mean, preparation, a lot of it's on the simulator at, at home here. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a motion sim here, which I pretty much use to, for new tracks and that kind of stuff. Uh, but after being out of the car for a few months, It was nice to kind of jump into it at a track. I know Sonoma and do some laps and really kind of just get, get back into the rhythm. Um, That works pretty well for me. And then showing up at a, at a, at a professional race weekend with a team like real time um, they had everything ready to go. Um, They had a suit for me. They had all the stuff nailed down. All I had to do was jump in the car and make sure I fit. And then uh, me and Dan were off and running. So it wasn't really too bad. Um, I think it would have been tougher if I was going to a new track or maybe a track I haven't driven on very often.
1: Well, going back to the weekend at Road America, a couple of topics to get to there before we let you go. One, of course, is probably the pervading topic of conversation from the weekend, which was the confusion in the final 10 minutes when there was a a, a full course yellow and then there wasn't. Um, We've talked previously, John and I have on the show, about uh, what transpired there. But from your perspective, can you take us through what you heard? What communications were you given and how did you handle that situation while leading the race?
0: Yeah. I mean, luckily from the driver's point of view, it's pretty basic because all you can see is the flag stations uh, right in front of you. And then what they tell you on the radio. So I was coming out of turn six, I believe. And over the radio, they said full course caution. And obviously when they say that you slow down a bit, but you don't slam on the brakes and go to 80 K's right away because you're never sure if someone's behind you or you don't want them to pile into you and that kind of thing. So I just kind of lifted and coasted down the hill and started weaving and all the corner workers had double yellows out. So I was just kind of under my breath, cursing a little bit because I really <laughs> didn't want a, a full course caution. Um, I wanted just to stay and keep driving as hard as I could and hopefully get to the end ahead of uh, the red Ferrari behind us. Um, but yeah. And then going down the back straight, it might've been 20 seconds later or 30 seconds later. It's hard to, hard to know for sure. But um, as I'm weaving waiting for people to catch up to me, I just hear green, green, green. And I floored it. Um, got really close to crashing, which probably would be, have been the last race I ever entered in my entire life. If I actually crashed, uh, going back to green like that. Um, but luckily was able to save it, uh, and just went, you know, back into the rhythm of, of the race. Um, luckily Danny didn't catch up to us too quickly. Um, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what happened behind us, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was ready for a big train of cars just to catch us thinking maybe we made a mistake. Maybe it was a full course caution. Um, So I just kind of put my head down and decided, all right, well, now we're going green for the rest of the way, so I'm going to drive as hard as I possibly can.
1: Yeah, well, certainly good reaction because uh, able to keep the gap and able to hold on for the the overall win. And the other topic I wanted to to touch on briefly was the fact that now, with the run of success that you have had, Dane Cameron, your co-driver, is really in position to fight for the Pro-Am Championship, despite... Basically, not scoring points in three races for various reasons throughout the season towards the Pro Am Championship, uh, going into Las Vegas. So, is that something you guys think about? Is that something that that weighs on you at all? Trying to help deliver a solid result for for Dane in the championship
0: fight? Um, obviously, uh, like we all want to do that for Dane, and I mean, we try not to put any extra pressure on ourselves so we can just continue performing. Um, but I think it would be it would be really fun even for me personally to be a little bit of a little tiny part of that to help them get that. Um, so we're pushing really hard. I mean, at, a before Sunday's race at road America, we were actually talking on the pit box about, you know, that wet, are we going to start on wets? Are we gonna start on the slicks? Do we want to kind of be risky with a setup on the car or anything like that? Um, and my opinion was let's just keep winning. So there's no reason to be conservative now trying to win has done us well. So let's just keep doing what we're going to do. Um, and I think Dane and the team feel the same way. So I think we're going to go to Vegas trying to win. And if we can get him a championship doing that, obviously that'll be that'll be great for everyone. But we're not just going to show up and try to get you know like second or anything like that. And I, I believe the NBR team who were, who we're fighting against for Dane for the championship, I think they're approaching the same way. Uh, it's basically going to be whoever wins the most in Vegas wins the championship. It's the way it should be, right? Yep, exactly. No problems for I don't think from anyone. Let's do this.
1: Awesome. Well, hey, it was a fun story to watch unfold in uh, Elkhart Lake over the weekend. Congratulations on the pair of wins and the overall win, especially. And we look forward to seeing you on the ground there in Vegas in a, about a month or so.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Stephen Simpson, and you're listening to the Sports Car 365
2: Double Stun Podcast.
1: on double stint now let's get to uh, one thing that came in from a listener and usually we ask for questions but we'll take some comments as well this one's from mask cosmo who wants to say thought i'd use this space to congratulate the emsa weather tech series drivers and officials for a great year. The amount of safety car time has decreased significantly, he says, in 2019. Driving standard in the series has been fantastic, obviously, but what about the race stewards and officials? Have you got to speak to them at all? And if so, have they taken a different approach this year which has allowed them to be more disciplined with the waving caution flag? He also says he wants to disagree with any fans who thought the Laguna Seca race was too processional. He calls it proper endurance racing. So, well thought out there. John, what do you make of um, the the racing the quality of racing and driving standards we've seen so far
2: i think it's really been down to the drivers themselves almost there's been so few cautions in the weather tech championship races this year that's really surprised me and i I think it's down to the professionalism we have both in the pros and the ams Um, the officials are doing a good job as well with calling penalties like they I, I would see him, so I think all around everybody has has some good things to say.
1: All right, thanks for writing in. We'll take your questions or comments on a future show. You can leave them in the comment section or use the hashtag Ask Double Stint on Twitter. All right, let's wrap up by previewing what's to come this weekend. A busy weekend for SRO Championships because we've got season finales: Blancpain Endurance Cup at Barcelona and the Blancpain GT World Challenge Asia finale at Shanghai this weekend, John.
2: Yeah, busy uh, finales for two of the three uh, World Challenge uh, series from SRO. Um, Thankfully, this will not happen next year. We have no clashing events between any of the World Challenge world challenge races from asia america or europe next year so um that'll be good but barcelona is going to be a, a big race for sure um and it's the endurance cup finale as well so i think there's over, close to 50 cars also should be the debut of the of the gt2 race inside of the gt sports uh, club we're still waiting for an entry list as of now but we do know uh, and there will be an Audi uh, GT2 on the track with James Sophronis at the wheel, but um, yeah, all the ten- all the attention's going to be on uh, the battle in GT3 and the Endurance Cup season finale. Uh, Jake Kilshaw will be on site for us, uh, looking forward to all the coverage there, and um, yeah, and we'll be following the the action from Shanghai as well from afar.
1: All right, looking forward to all the racing this weekend. You can find our coverage at sportscar365.com. But for now, it's time to say so long. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes if you have the time. Questions and comments are always welcome in the comment section or with the hashtag AskDoubleStint. And with that, we'll leave you for next week. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next time around on Double Stint.